just a moment, we're going to look at both of those passages which we read earlier, so it might do no harm to turn up Deuteronomy chapter 7, at least to, to begin with, on page 168. Sorry, 186, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word not only calls us to know you, but calls us to know how you want us to live. So we pray that you would be with us now as we, we gather around your word and as we, as we open our, our ears and our eyes and our hearts to what it is that you would teach us. Lord, we would love to live differently because we've heard your voice, because we've gathered around your word, and because we've learned your ways. Come and speak to us just now, we pray. Amen. Last Sunday morning, we thought about the distinctive place of single people in the family of God. And this morning, we're going to continue with a series that's been running here for just, I think this is the third week now. We're considering how we might be followers of Jesus Christ in our families. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at marriage. Now, there was nothing very distinctive about Christian marriage in Western societies probably until about 30 years ago. Because throughout our societies, the, the norm that everybody expected that was that people would be married and then would stay together in lifelong relationships. We now live in a world where that's no longer the expectation. We don't really expect that one man and one woman will remain faithfully married all of their lives. Divorce has become a common part of life. I tried looking up statistics of this on the web, and goodness, uh, it was so confusing. Uh, I wanted to try and bring you a very up-to-date uh, sense of, of what the divorce statistics are. In the end, I resigned myself to, to not being confused, and I didn't want to confuse you. In a book I was using to prepare, uh, I saw a, a statistic from the U.S., in 1960, for every 1,000 people, there were 35 divorced people. By 1990, for every 1,000 people, there were 142. So that amounts to a 406% increase just in 30 years of the level of divorce. Now, it seems to me, without knowing the detail, that trend probably has continued. And I don't think that American trend would be a million miles away from the kind of trend that we would have here in the UK. I, I want to move very, very quickly away from statistics because I don't think it's a very useful way to think about all of this because the reality is that behind those statistics, behind the 150,000 or more divorces that there will be in the UK this year, each one of those represents a broken marriage, two broken lives, 
and potentially a broken family. The statistics only tell us how widespread this is. They tell us nothing of the heartache that's caused in divorce and broken marriages. And I want to be careful this morning as well to steer clear of any sense of passing judgment on anyone who's experienced a divorce or to pass judgment on society at large where, where divorce happens. I certainly don't want to give the impression that divorce is something that happens out there, but not in here, not here in the church. The reality is that people are divorcing in churches as well as outside of them. Claire and I have become painfully aware of that just in the last few years, as marriages of some of our best friends have have come apart before our very eyes. We could never have expected that. That was not in my mind 15 years ago as I, I set off into adult life. That's not what I expected. I couldn't possibly have predicted that, but it's happened. And maybe you have had that similar experience of watching people close to you, uh, their marriages unravel. This experience of watching marriages fail, I think, is one of the great tragedies of our time. And as members of the church, as we watch, we watch with particular sadness when a marriage between two Christians breaks down. We wonder, how? How can this be? And this morning I want to think with you about marriage. In particular, I want to think with you what's distinctive about Christian marriage. And I want to invite you to recover a distinctive biblical view of marriage. If you are married, I hope that what we say here will reinforce your marriage against the many pressures and forces that that seem to undermine married life. And if you're not married... I hope that what we say here this morning will give you an insight into the the life of married people and will also stand you in good stead should you ever move towards the point of being married in the future. Why are Christian marriages failing as much or nearly as much as other marriages? I'm going to suggest a couple of reasons. Firstly, many Christians don't realize how fundamentally different our view of marriage is from the view of others around us. And then secondly, I want to suggest that we as as Christians in the church haven't noticed how this other view of marriage has crept into the church. We, We haven't seen it happen. Let me begin by pointing out a distinction between two different views of marriage. I'll begin with the biblical view of marriage, and I'll call it covenant faithfulness. It's based on a promise. A man and a woman promise one another, the church and God, that they will be faithful to each other until death. Now, covenants are risky because there are no qualifications and no reservations. In fact, the traditional marriage vows 
Uh, and most of you who have been married here today will probably have taken these kind of vows. They rule out get-out clauses. You know that about them, don't you? The husband and the wife promise to love one another, not just in the good times, but when? In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. It's written into the marriage covenant that there is no get-out clause. Whatever happens, we're going to stay together. And for this kind of a marriage to succeed, I think we need to rely on things greater than just ourselves. We need to rely on God, a community of people around us to support us, the power of forgiveness, all these kind of things. Now, that all sounds very obvious and familiar to us, and you probably wonder why I'm wasting your time covering that ground again. Hold that in your mind. Covenant faithfulness, the biblical view of marriage. I want to talk for a moment now about another view of marriage, and I want to call it contractual faithfulness. It's not really based on a promise, no matter how much it might appear to be. It's based on a calculation. A man and a woman agree to be with one another, to be faithful to one another, unless one or both of them finds a better option. Now, this contract isn't as risky as a covenant because it does include qualifications and reservations. We, we know, of course, of the high-profile celebrity weddings with their prenuptial agreements. Before going into the marriage, it's already outlined what's going to happen when the marriage dissolves. The, the get-out clauses are written in right from the start. So with these kind of contractual approaches to marriage, there are costs. Losing that marriage will hurt, but it's a calculated risk for both parties. Folks, I want us to be clear in our own minds this morning about those two realities. I want, I want you to recognize them. I want us to name them for what they are. And I want you to see the huge difference between them. If they sound like they're roughly the same thing, they're not. One of them is here and the other is over here. They both call themselves marriage, but only one of them has anything in common or, or allows us to work out the biblical view of marriage. I said I wanted to raise those two possibilities for you, but the other thing I want to do is to to say that I think that second notion of the contractual marriage is very much among us. It's in our society, of course, but it's also among us in the church. We haven't seen it coming. We haven't named it for what it is. But a lot, in a lot of cases, two Christians are getting married with that contractual view in mind. And we've lost sight of our commitment to the covenant faithfulness that God's people are to exhibit. Now, I've already said this morning, and I want to come back to this, that there's a danger here this morning that some people are feeling judged because their marriages have failed. And let me say something at this point. 
despite my complete commitment to permanent covenant faithfulness, I believe that there are circumstances where to dissolve a marriage is the lesser of two evils. What do you say to the woman who's lived for decades with a compulsively abusive husband? Hang in there, love, until he beats the living daylights out of you. Is that the the God-fearing and godly answer? What do you say to the the teenagers or or the couple who, who were drawn into marriage as teenagers because of an unwanted pregnancy and were forced into that relationship, who then discover that they have absolutely nothing in common, that they're entirely incompatible except in bed once or twice in the passion of youth? What do you say to them? You've made your bed, lie in it for the next 50 or 60 years. Is that the Christian and godly answer? Friends, I think there are times and situations when, when marriages become destructive and occasions where divorce is necessary in the circumstances. And I think that's part of living in a broken and fallen world. But here's the thing. Having said that, can we find a way of not letting the exception become the rule? Can we find a way that says on the one hand, yes, sometimes marriages will need to break up, while saying and affirming with all our heart that that is not the best way? The American writer Wendell Berry is, is characteristically wise on the subject. He says, the possibility of breaking a vow can tell us nothing of what is meant by making and keeping one. The possibility of breaking a vow tells us nothing of what is meant by making and keeping one. Trying to stay married all the while focusing on all the legitimate reasons why I could get divorced is crazy. It's like trying to to get fit while I'm thinking all the times of all the possible ways in which I could get sick or, or trying to get rich by studying how other people have become poor. Friends, the truth is that Christian marriage remains covenantal. It remains a promise with no get-out clause, no exceptions. And when two Christian people come together to be married, this is what they do. They promise to be together for the rest of their lives, and they mean it. And they do that in a society that doesn't see it that way. I hope you understand that. Our society no longer sees it this way. We live in a society that urges us to keep our options open. In case that newer or better option comes along. But when two Christian people stand in the front of a church like this and they're married, they say to one another, no, I won't keep my options open. I close the door for once and for all to all other options. I've made my choice and it's you. 
we've seen two different understandings of marriage. We've said that Christian people strive for covenant faithfulness. Why is that? Are, are we saying somehow that being in the church makes us better than other people that we... No, of course not. Why is it that we of all people ought to be those who demonstrate and who live out faithfulness? Well, the simple answer is because we're learning to be like God. We're learning to be like the God of Israel, the God of Jesus Christ, the covenant faithful God. Let's do just for a moment here what we've done in each one of these sermons and have a, have a look at God's word and build a biblical picture of this thing that we're talking about. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7, page 186, if you're using the few Bibles. This passage tells us a wonderful thing about God's people Israel, something that made them unique. We learn here that God didn't choose them because they were particularly good. He didn't rescue them out of Egypt because they were a particularly strong and powerful nation. We read in verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? Because of his promise to Abraham. Why did God bring them through the Red Sea? Because he promised to be their God. Why did he bring them through the desert and into the promised land? Because God keeps the promises that he makes. Why did he stick with them? Century after century after century of their waywardness and their faithfulness. Why do they stick with them through thick and thin? It's because God is unstintingly faithful. He never, ever breaks his promise. As it says in verse 9, He is the faithful God keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. God didn't keep his options open with Israel. If he had, he would have had countless opportunities to ditch them and to find for himself a people more worthy of his love and affection. But no. He chose them. He loved them. And he remained faithful to them. Turn with me quickly to the other passage we read this morning. Ephesians 5, page 1176. 1176. In this passage, Paul makes explicit the connection between God's faithfulness to us and the faithfulness that we ought to display in our marriages. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see what Paul is doing here? 
He's talking to Christians in their marriages, and he says to them, the unfailing love of God for his people, seen through the the history of Israel. The self-giving love of Jesus, seen as he gave himself on the cross for the church. This is the model. This is the only way to be married. A husband gives his, himself to and for his wife, and a wife gives herself to and for her husband. Friends, the Bible teaches us of the faithfulness of God and then says, right, go now and live in the same way that your God deals with you. Ephesians 5, I think, makes the point that Christian marriages are to be places where the very faithfulness of God is on display. And actually, I would want to broaden that a bit. Whether we're married or not, the faithfulness that we display in our relationships with our friends, our family, with our community here in the church, those relationships give us an opportunity to demonstrate to the world around us the faithfulness of God. I don't even know how you're responding to this word faithfulness that I'm using over and over again. Faithfulness isn't sexy in Britain in 2007. We live in a culture that's dominated by advertising and aspirational living. People change. And we're urged to keep on changing all the time. New options present themselves and we're told that it's only a mug who doesn't avail himself or herself of the new options that present themselves. We've been urged for so long now to trade up in our cars every year or two or to trade up in our TVs to the newest model that somewhere deep in the heart of us There's a danger that we don't become people who trade up in our relationships with one another. That when we look at this spouse of of eight years or ten years or twelve years, there isn't a temptation welling up inside us to trade up for the newer and the younger model. In this world of contractual faithfulness, where you only wait around until it suits you to leave, covenant faithfulness that willingness to stay and to stay and to stay becomes something very unusual very strange a witness to something beyond ourselves to God I think this area of faithfulness presents the church with a wonderful opportunity in a world that struggles with this, that struggles with faithfulness. We can be people who are learning to demonstrate the very faithfulness of God. That can only happen as we ourselves are being changed, as we're becoming more like God, as his character becomes our character, as his faithfulness to us flows out through us and becomes our faithfulness to the people around us. 
This is an area of Christian living that we aren't going to be able to do on our own. Because I think, in the end, we learn faithfulness from one another. I know what faithfulness looks like because I've grown up in communities like this one. I've been surrounded all my life with people who've been married for 40 years or for 50 years or for 60 years. I see around me people who've done this. And I'm learning as I watch to imagine that I could do that one day too. I know what faithfulness looks like because my mom and dad stayed faithful to their marriage vows through better and worse until death did them part. And I've learned more about faithfulness since I've come to Kirkpatrick Memorial because I've, I've learned what it is to be faithful to, to a community, to a church. I've learned it from the men and women who've sat here and who have served here through decades when the grass was greener everywhere else other than here. For decades, their people have watched their church die here before their very eyes. And while they watched other people move on, while others changed, they have remained and have been faithful. Friends, faithfulness can be costly. It means that sense of, of missing out on the other thing that could have been ours. But in the end, it's a glorious thing. In the end, it leads to lives of wonderful richness and maturity, lives that we can look back on, content that we have been faithful people and that our faithfulness has mirrored in a small way the very faithfulness of God. Being a faithful husband or wife is a wonderful way to show the world who God is. We began this morning by talking about marriage and we've ended up talking about faithfulness and I think that's great. Because faithfulness is the Christian church's answer to the question, how do we support marriages? If we really want to be a congregation that supports marriage, I think we need to take a step back from marriage itself, important though it is, and say, how can we learn to be faithful people? And how can we encourage faithfulness in one another? We ought to pray that God would make us people who are faithful to him, increasingly faithful to one another, and then faithful in every one of the relationships that he calls us to. Faithfulness. The faithfulness of God lived out among his people is the only hope for marriage in today's and tomorrow's world. Let us pray.